Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. Attorneys general have a unique role as defenders of the public interest and often work collectively on nonpartisan issues that have a wide impact on people's daily lives. In our second season, we've invited attorneys general from different political parties to discuss how they work together in a bipartisan way to serve their constituents and protect the rule of law. In today's episode, we welcome Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch and Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost for a conversation about their work in environmental enforcement, civil rights, representing state agencies, and combating Medicaid fraud. Generals Yost and Frosch, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a real honor to speak with you both. Um, I would like to start off talking a little bit about the role of Attorney General as the Chief Legal Officer for the state or territories. So in that role, you actually end up representing various state agencies, in essence, serving as like an in-house lawyer um, across state government. I'd love to hear how that works in practice for each of your offices. General Frosch, can you maybe kick that one off? Sure. Thank you, Allison, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, We represent in Maryland uh, not only every state executive agency, but we represent the governor, all the constitutional officers, the entire General Assembly, uh, and the judiciary. So uh, put aside the fact that the governor and I are of different parties, Uh, There are conflicts all the time, Uh, conflicts in the sense that folks disagree with each other. I mean, even uh, in the same administration, the Department of Health may disagree with the uh, Department of Labor, and we we represent them all. Uh, We we give them the best advice that we possibly can. We try to make sure that that our advice is the same, regardless of which agency we're, we're advising. Um, But we often get into situations where the General Assembly wants us to do X and the governor wants us to do not X. And we will, uh, in those situations, provide independent counsel to to both. Occasionally, we'll allow one side to hire outside counsel. But for the most part, it's our attorneys uh, who are advising the different parties and we, we do our very best to, to give them the best legal advice there is, and sometimes they even follow it. <laughs> General Yost, what about you in, in Ohio? Well, I would echo what uh, General Frosch said, uh, similar kinds of issues in Ohio. I'll, I'll add one quirk. Um, I, uh, like many attorneys general, uh, am independently elected. Um, so it's possible to have a an attorney general and governor of different parties. Uh, we happen to be in the same party in, in Ohio at the moment. Uh, but it raises the question of why do we have an independent election? I, at the federal government, that's not the way it is. And the uh, president is allowed to choose his or her own lawyer, uh, which resolves those questions of uh, a conflict between the attorney general, uh, perhaps, and, and the executive. Uh, Ohio has elected to have an independent attorney general because uh, it, at one point, had been an appointed office, uh, and uh, that led to some not great results. Uh, and in 1851, it became a constitutional office, independently elected, because my client uh, is not the governor, it's not the legislature or the uh, ever-proliferating bureaucracy. Uh, it is the people of Ohio 
who are frequently not at the table. Uh, people of Ohio have expressed their views through the Constitution and its amendments that have been uh, uh, ratified by a vote of the people. Uh, and when there's a conflict between policy choices or legal interpretations that are at odds with uh, the Constitution or several other uh, situations where the Attorney General has um, other uh, roles that uh, he or she plays, we end up uh, needing to represent the people. The governor, the other officers, the uh, universities and public agencies are employees of my client, the state of Ohio. Uh, they're due some deference because they've been elected to run the enterprise, uh, but they are on my turf when they start talking about the law. Right. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So I want to maybe dive a little bit into a more specific example. Um, for instance, in Ohio, General Yost, um, you represent the Ohio Civil Rights Commission. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, how that works for you in practice and then also just your role in, in terms of civil rights in this state. Well, I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a bit frustrated by it because uh, Ohio does not give the Attorney General uh, much independence uh, in that regard. The uh, House Civil Rights Commission, of course, uh, is able to hear complaints. We represent the commission. Um, but there are instances where there is a role, I think, to play. Um, we've seen a rise in uh, discriminatory harassment, even hate crimes. Uh, I recall um, a couple of years ago when I first had come into office, there was a major manufacturer, national Fortune 100 company, uh, that had had uh, racist uh, things written on walls and a noose was found and uh, really awful stuff that, you know, sounds more like the 1950s than uh, 2019. We were very limited in what we could do. What we did do creatively was we took the... Uh, staff that represents the Civil Rights Commission and went in and conducted some training for that manufacturer. And all of the uh, people at that plant um, were relieved from work on time. Uh, in other words, the uh, employer paid for it. And they went in and, and conducted these trainings for the entire uh, work staff at that, uh, that plant. Would have been nice, though, uh, if we had had uh, a little more, a few more tools in our toolbox, which some other attorneys general do. General Frosch, what had a civil rights work for you in Maryland? So uh, civil rights justice uh, have been a high priority for me from the beginning of the time that I uh, took office. One of the first things we did was issue guidelines for every law enforcement officer and agency in the state that prohibit uh, discriminatory profiling, profiling based on race, uh, color, ethnicity, nationality, et cetera. Um, we then have uh, a number of different policy initiatives that we've engaged in. And uh, one of the first was dealing with Maryland's cash bail system. We found that 
there were thousands of people uh, in our jails who were there for one reason and one reason only, uh, they were poor. They committed minor offenses uh, and judges had set bail for them in amounts they thought these folks could meet. And sometimes all it took was a hundred bucks or 250 bucks. Um, but there are folks who can't put that cash together to pay a bail bondsman to get them out of jail. And um, we first wrote advice uh, saying that to the extent this was keeping, uh, that our system was keeping people in jail because they were poor, it was unconstitutional. And we lobbied our court of appeals. I had tried as a state legislator, which was my job right before I was elected attorney general, I had tried to get legislation passed and uh, it had been beaten down by the bail bondsman. But uh, we went a different route. Uh, we went to the, our highest court, the court of appeals and asked them to change the rule. Uh, and they did. And uh, they basically came up with a rule that says that release on uh, someone's own recognizance is the place where you start. And that if, uh, if setting a financial condition uh, will, will mean that the person uh, remains in jail because of their inability to meet that condition, uh, that's inappropriate. The court will have to find some other uh, means. So we now have thousands fewer people in jail on a daily basis. We still have work to do on that, but uh, it, it, I think, was a, a very important step forward. Um, we also sponsored legislation. This was in 2020. Uh, to stop Maryland's practice of suspending driver's licenses when people are unable uh, or just don't pay the fines and fees that they own to the Motor Vehicle Administration. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people who couldn't get driver's licenses because they owed small amounts of money, hundreds of bucks in most cases. And, um, Various different surveys and research in other states made very clear that, that the reason that the fees were unpaid was because of uh, poverty, not in all cases, but in many. So uh, our legislation reversed that policy, uh, went into effect last October, uh, and by the 1st of November, there were 90,000 people who had applied to get their driver's licenses reinstated and hundreds of thousands more who've uh, applied since. Um, let me just went, mention uh, one more initiative. Uh, and last year in the spring, in, as the uh, COVID-19 pandemic was beginning, there was a lot of focus, and appropriately so, on criminal justice reform. Uh, George Floyd had just been murdered, and uh, it was very clear that uh, a number of our policymakers, legislators, uh, were focusing on criminal justice reform. We realized that uh, access to justice in the civil context was going to be severely impacted as a result of the, the pandemic. And so we put together a task force, 40-some uh, people on the task force itself, but more than 300 on the committees and subcommittees that we had for the task force. And uh, the task force looked at uh, all aspects of the, the crisis. And we, the objectives were, we made 
59 recommendations for the General Assembly, for the judiciary, and for the executive branch. And the, the objectives were to keep Marylanders housed, to keep them economically secure, uh, to keep them fed, and uh, to ensure that they had access uh, to the courts because, you know, among many other issues, lots of folks don't have internet access. And, um, you know, we are in the midst of a housing crisis. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of evictions that are pending or will be filed as soon as the, the various federal uh, restrictions are, are lifted. And so uh, this task force made, uh, made recommendations, some of which have already been implemented, some of which uh, resulted in legislation that has recently been passed, and all of them will address uh, civil rights in a very very real and meaningful way. And uh, we hope that uh, low-income folks and uh, people of color who are disparately impacted by this pandemic uh, will benefit as a result. A lot of work remains to be done, but that, that's another step forward. Switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about another area where attorneys general do a lot of work, um, particularly energy and environment issues. So you both serve on the NAG Energy Environment Committee. I'd love to have you explain to our listeners, if you could, what your office's role in in environmental enforcement. Um, General Yost, do you want to kick that one off? Well, thank you. Um, Ohio's got kind of a cool situation because I wear two hats uh, here with the environment. One is the normal role of representing the Ohio EPA. And so, uh, for example, when we had uh, uh, some spills uh, associated with the uh, Rover pipeline in Stark County, um, we went to court and uh, have been embroiled in some litigation with uh, the uh, folks that uh, run Rover. Um, but we also have a separate role. The, the attorney general under Ohio law is the uh, trustee and steward of all of the state's natural resources. So independent of the governor and the executive agency of the EPA, uh, I have common law authority to protect the environment. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a prosecutor. Uh, I'm not an environmental lawyer, although I have some really smart people who are that work with our organization. Um, one of the things that I did to prepare uh, myself uh, after I was elected uh, for the potential that I might have to act in that independent capacity is I assembled a group of academics uh, who specialize in air, water, and land um, issues. Uh, and uh, th these are not law professors, they're scientists uh, who work with forever chemicals and you know, concern about uh, precipitants and aquifers and, uh, and frankly, ephemeral streams and uh, other kinds of issues. And we've been meeting monthly uh, to talk about the science and uh, to equate what research is showing with um, the law and legal actions and how the courts might uh, actually take uh, steps beyond uh, merely regulatory issues that are caught up in the EPA. Very excited about that work. Um, really intrigued by uh, some findings that cavitation uh, produced by ultrasound is able to destroy 
forever chemicals in our water supply. Now it's uh, not terribly economically feasible right now, but that principle uh, may open the door to some interesting things downstream. If, if I can make a play on words there. Uh, at any rate, uh, I, I, uh, I want to I say this. I don't know how we end up having uh, arguments about protecting the environment. Um, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the land we live on uh, is the same land we're leave, leaving to our children. Uh, it's the same air and water that they breathe. Uh, it's incumbent upon us to protect the environment. The question should be merely the question of cost and benefit. Uh, the obviously the the, the best way to protect the planet uh, would be to eliminate the human race off of it. Uh, we won't have any man-made impacts if there's no humans. Uh, but that's not going to happen. And so we, we need to balance um, the good effects we can have in protecting the environment and preserving it uh, with the economics uh, and, and the uh, uh, the, the, frankly, just the costs of, of achieving it. That's where the debate should be. Um, I think we should all be environmentalists. General Frosch, I'd love to hear your take and also just what your office's role in, is in environmental enforcement. So uh, we have an anomalous situation in Maryland. Uh, and that is that the Attorney General does not have uh, common law powers. So I'm, I'm very jealous of General Yost. Uh, the, attorney, the office of the Attorney General was in the original Constitution uh, of Maryland back in the 18th century, taken out in the 19th century and put back in again in the 19th century. And our highest court said, that means uh, you don't have common law power. So, uh, it, it puts me in a very odd uh, situation. As I mentioned, you know, we have a, we have a Republican governor and uh, his administration's policy is different from what mine uh, would be uh, if I were in, in their position. Uh, and just to give you uh, an example, what they, what they say is, uh, with respect to environmental enforcement, we believe in compliance assistance. If we find that you've been uh, breaking the law, we will help you get into compliance. And uh, I think that's not sufficiently protective of Maryland's air and water. Uh, the, uh, the resources of the state have actually been diminished since the um, financial crisis in the uh, early 2000s. We have fewer uh, fewer people who are inspecting the different permits that uh, industries are given to pollute our water, to pollute our air. Uh, and in many cases, they only get around to an inspection once every five or six years. So if the response they get after, you know, a five-year absence is, uh, okay, yeah, we're sorry we've been polluting, um, but uh, and and the, the department says, that's okay, we want you never to do it again. It means that the industry, the, the unscrupulous ones, have a free pass for 10 or, or 12 years. And it puts honest businesses at a competitive disadvantage. And it also is 
totally inadequate uh, to protect our natural resources. Maryland is home to the Chesapeake Bay. It's the largest estuary in the state. It was H.L. Mencken called it a giant protein factory. It was it when when Captain John Smith sailed into the bay, literally the oyster reefs crested the waves, and uh, there were so many fish that Smith wrote in his diary. You know, they they tried to catch them with a frying pan. It looked like a carpet of fish. Well, you know that's all gone. Uh, the oysters are at less than 1% of their, uh, their levels when the bay was in its pristine state. And crabs are, are uh, being depleted. There was a 30% drop uh, in the last survey in terms of the number of crabs in, in the bay. And uh, in my view, uh, the state needs to be much, much more aggressive in enforcing the laws that we have. Often the laws are not even as tough as they should be. Um, but in a very real sense, uh, my hands are tied. Um, I have to say, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to make this uh, partisan, but we did a ton of work during the last administration uh, fighting back against uh, their uh, policies that were essentially dropping caps on uh, greenhouse gas emissions from you know one field to another, and uh, and reducing the standards for environmental protection across the board. So we've been extraordinarily active, but. Uh, I think there's much more that we could be and should be doing uh, in terms of enforcing Maryland's environmental laws. Yeah, and I think this example goes to show that while we have 56 attorneys general across the country and the states and territories, each of you have very differently defined roles within within your jurisdiction. So that's, that's a fascinating uh, description between the two of you. Um, one role that actually a lot of AGs do have, but I think is very little known, is um, in fighting healthcare fraud, um, and particularly Medicaid uh, provider fraud, which costs American taxpayers just an incalculable amount of money every year. I believe both of your offices oversee the Medicaid fraud control unit in your states. Um, can you explain really what that is and how your office investigates and prosecutes fraud in the healthcare industry? General Frosch, maybe do you want to kick this one off? Sure. Um, we, have a, we have a Medicaid fraud unit and their job is to recover money that has been stolen from the state and the federal government. Uh, people have made false claims or cheated or not performed the services uh, that they said they were going to perform. And uh, if I may, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell you about one of them. And it, it, starts with, it starts with a woman named Vonda. And uh, Vonda was suffering from advanced stage cancer uh, she had a tracheostomy and difficulty speaking. She had difficulty walking as well. She had lost something like 40% of her body weight. She weighed 85 pounds. Vonda was from West Virginia, but she was sent to a nursing home in Hagerstown, Maryland. And uh, she was there for, for some time. Uh, and though she still needed help, she still needed nursing care, uh, the administration came to her and said, you got to get out. And she said, I, I don't understand that. And they said, well, your Medicaid, your Medicare benefits have run out. And Medicare pays about twice as much as Medicaid does. She, she was eligible for Medicaid, uh, but they told her, you got to get out. 
And she said, well, I, I, I have no place to go. They said, well, if you don't leave, we're going to call the police. So she'd gone into a car that they provided with a woman she had never met who took her to a townhouse in Baltimore. She'd never been to Baltimore in her life. Um, and she put her in this townhouse. She took away her benefits card. She had a West Virginia benefits card. And uh, the woman who had taken her was using the benefits card and was feeding Vonda ramen noodles and water. And that was it. Um, and uh, after a couple of weeks, Vonda figured out how to turn off the benefits card. And when she did, she was physically abused, put back into the car, taken to and dumped at a homeless shelter. And thankfully, you know, the folks at the homeless shelter were, were on top of it. They took her immediately to the emergency room of, of a nearby hospital. Um, what, what was going on was there was a chain of nursing homes. There were five of them, the NMS nursing homes. And uh, they, they were throwing people out once they had reached 100 days of Medicare reimbursement, which is the limit. And replacing them, instead of taking Medicaid, uh, if they had people waiting to get in, so they would throw out the people who are on Medicaid and replace them with uh, Medicare recipients. And uh, so it, 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 uh, it developed into a case brought by our Medicaid fraud unit. And it developed also into a criminal case because there were several unlicensed assisted living facilities that were um, taking these patients and not giving them uh, any kind of care. In many cases, they fed them poorly and sent them to adult daycare sometimes, but uh, provided next to nothing else. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our Medicaid fraud unit prosecutes, you know, big cases like, like that, but it also prosecutes individuals who abuse or neglect their uh, their patients, and uh, it it's just uh, heart wrenching to see some of the things that uh, citizens of our state suffer at the hands of these uh, unscrupulous individuals. And so you know we have we have a robust enforcement uh, program, and uh, overall they're they're very successful at it. General Yost, how about in Ohio? How does the, the that kind of investigation or prosecution work with your office? Well, it's kind of interesting because I had been prior to Attorney General. I wasn't a legislator. I uh, was the auditor of state, so I handled uh, a, a lot of the investigation and numbers of work uh, from the state auditor's office and put the cases together uh, with and for the attorney general and local prosecutors. Um, so I've been, I've been about this business for uh, about uh, 13 years now. And uh, it's, uh, there's been quite, uh, it's quite a journey. Um, I think Brian and I could probably both uh, take the next hour to talk about uh, stories. Um, I was just thinking about Michael, uh, Dr. Michael uh, Sayeg, I think is the way you say his name. Um, it was in the, the, the 99.6th percentile of all Medicaid prescribers um, just putting out, you know, pounds of, of opiates um, to patients that he never saw. Uh, he, we 
successfully prosecuted him. Uh, I'm thinking of another case in Southeast Ohio where uh, there was uh, a fellow that was supposed to be providing treatment, uh, addiction treatment for opiate, uh, uh, folks that had opiate uh, use disorder um, and uh, was making it up, uh, billing for things that uh, weren't provided, um, uh, billing for direct counseling, one-on-one counseling when it was actually conducting group sessions. Um, So you have 15 people in and you're doing one-on-one billing uh, you know, your group session actually is 15 times more profitable. Um, so it's just uh, really astounding uh, some of the things that we see, and there's a huge amount of money. So I, I don't think it's going away. Let me come back, though, for just a second on the environment. Uh, I appreciated hearing uh, General Frosch's story and his, uh, his views uh, on his office. Um, but there, there's an important takeaway here, uh, because I didn't agree with uh, his assessment of some of the Trump era uh, changes in regulations. Um, a regulation is not to become ever more stringent, never to be rolled back. It ought to be um, connected with science. Um, and there are times that uh, uh, subsequent art, um, additional cost benefit analysis, uh, would suggest that maybe we had been too stringent uh, in a particular area. And government ought to be quick to be ready to uh, adjust that. Now, I, I'm never going to uh, convince my colleague, I, I don't think, that uh, my view on some of these things is right. But here in DAG, one of the things I value about this organization is that Brian and I share a common value. We want to protect the environment. We, we care about what we're leaving behind us for our great-grandchildren uh, on this planet. And we have different views as to what the right way to do that is. But if we start as attorneys general, as Americans, all of us, with the goal that the people that disagree with us are not evil, they're not trying to dismantle uh, financial accountability or racial justice or the police uh, departments or uh, the environment, whatever you, whatever you want to talk about and recognize that we share similar goals and we're discussing how to reach those goals. Uh, we have a more profitable uh, discussion and our society is a more civil society. Not to say that we don't have sharp and meaningful disagreements and that uh, there aren't things that are right and wrong. There are. Um, But boy, our current, uh, I I respect Brian uh, and his work. uh, And uh, even when we disagree about specifics on policy, sometimes uh, pretty pretty sharply, uh, I never question uh, his good heart, his good intentions, and and, uh, the integrity. Uh, of the positions he takes. And I, I just want to say that's completely mutual. Uh, I respect uh, Dave. I respect his work ethic and his views. And most of the time we agree. Sometimes we disagree and we, we disagree sharply at, at, at a few of those times. But uh, 
have a great working relationship and, and are able to uh, generate a lot of productivity for the citizens of Ohio and for Maryland. That's actually where I wanted to wrap up our interview. And I think you both have stated it so well. I'm just interested if you have any more you want to share about just how those relationships that you have formed with your fellow attorneys general have helped you do your job well. Uh, General Yost, do you want to kick that one off? Well, I think the greatest virtue in uh, public service is humility. And humility starts with this idea that mom taught us when we were young. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, now, mom told us that to make us feel better when we'd screwed something up uh, as a child. But we all say that it's true. We all agree that it's true. The, the necessary corollary uh, to that is that I'm not right all the time. If I can make mistakes, that means that I have the potential to be mistaken about a conclusion or a worldview. How do we, how do we deal with that? Because I didn't come to my opinion because I thought I was wrong or I'm hesitant about it. Um, I, I've thought long and hard and, you know, believe what I believe and I've come to a conclusion. So what does humility mean? Humility means that I have to get out of my bubble. It means that I have to, uh, you know, I like to read the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I find that a lot less head exploding than reading the New York Times. Uh, but I read the New York Times anyway. Why? Because there are writers there, there are stories there that are covered that uh, I'm not going to seek out, I, points of view that I may not otherwise hear. It's the same with my colleagues on the left in NAG. Um, while many times they fail to convince me uh, of something, uh, the consideration of their points of view, the expansion of the borders of my life beyond simply Ohio and the people that uh, I talk to here helps me to remember that uh, there are data points that I don't have. There are points of view that I will never be able to uh, share because, for example, I've been white all my life um, and uh, I can't know what it means to be black during a traffic stop or to be a single mom who's facing eviction. Uh, it's important for us to understand all those things. Uh, uh, for my friends on the left, I hope that they get a little bit of amelioration on some of their more radical views about the economy and understand that disincentives can end up dampening economic activity and hiring and, and the potential to achieve for people who need a job. Um, but NAG provides us uh, with that forum, uh, and I've been very grateful for the conversations and the relationships that have developed. Sure. Um, it, like Dave, uh, I, I value NAG tremendously. It's one thing to read in the newspaper about uh, what the attorney general of some state out West or in the Midwest or wherever uh, has said or done, and you think she did what? Um, and it's quite another to sit down with her or him and have a conversation. And uh, it, it's something that 
you know, I learned from the first day I was in uh, the Maryland legislature, which is that the people who are elected are overwhelmingly people of good intentions, uh, people who are well motivated. Uh, we seek the same objectives, obviously. You know, we want prosperity and we want a clean environment and we want public safety. Um, but we have different approaches to achieving those those goals. And um, there, there are some folks that I served with uh, in Annapolis who ended up in jail. Uh, I like to tell people that, the, that until I became attorney general, the only folks I knew went to jail were folks I, I met uh, in the General Assembly. Um, but but um, overwhelmingly, uh, our my colleagues uh, there and my colleagues uh, in office as attorneys general uh, are well-intentioned, well-motivated people trying to do the right thing, trying to find the right path. And NAG helps us understand that because it puts us in the same room. Uh, it enables us to have conversations with each other and deal with each other as human beings and uh, not as, you know, uh, ideologues or spokesmen for ideas that we disagree with. Um, human beings uh, complete with uh, excellent qualities and even a few, you know, quirks that maybe are not so great. All of us, myself most especially, have flaws. And um, there's a humanizing aspect to uh, being in the same room and dealing with the same issues. And we do it, as I said previously, we do it very productively. And you can look at multi-state after multi-state, initiative after initiative that NAG uh, has undertaken and look at the great results that they have generated, sometimes in terms of uh, monetary relief for our residents and citizens, and uh, sometimes injunctive relief, and, and sometimes uh, proactive policies that that help uh, everyone in every state. And uh, so uh, it's why I it's why I enjoy going to NAG meetings. Why I think the pandemic has uh, has halted our progress a little bit. It's great to to talk to each other. Uh, uh, over video, but it's not the same thing as, as being together. I'm just very grateful to have that opportunity. Well, we agree. We hope to be able to bring everybody back together again very soon. Um, and I just want to say thank you to you both for sharing your thoughts with our listeners today, joining us in this virtual room for these conversations, which I think do go a long way towards showing that attorneys general, no matter their political party, are, are working on behalf of their citizens to do the right thing. And so often it's, you know, you're all on the same page on some of these issues. And it's, it's great to talk about some of these important ones with you today. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks. You guys too. See you, Dave. I hope in person sometime soon. I, I'm looking forward to it, Brian. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the nonpartisan work of America's 56 state and territory attorneys general in future episodes. In the meantime, you can learn more at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.